As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. Hello, welcome to the show. It's Justin sitting down with Tom Wright to ask him your questions again on your regular Theology Think Fest. This week, taking on a big issue, the problem of suffering. Lots of questions that have come in on that. We're also going to toss in a couple on living as a Christian in today's world. But you can ask any question you want as well by registering over at the website askntwrite.com. As ever, the show is brought to you by Premier in partnership with SBCK and NT Wright Online. Just a quick bit of housekeeping before we get into today's edition. If you like this show and you live on the west coast of the USA, you might want to check out Unbelievable Live in LA. It's my other show, Unbelievable, coming to Costa Mesa or Costa Mesa, as I've been told to pronounce it, uh, in California. It's Friday the 11th and Saturday the 12th of October. The Friday night is a live audience edition of the show with renowned Christian thinker Professor John Lennox in conversation with agnostic talk show host Dave Rubin. And then on Saturday, John Lennox and a whole team of Christian apologists join me for Unbelievable the Conference. So do book your place for the 11th and 12th of October at Unbelievable. Dot live. We've had some lovely appreciation of the show come in recently. Nick Jones tweeted, thanks for access to the pastoral side of Dr. Wright. Really enjoying the Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast and find it quite helpful to my own pastoral ministry. Thank you very much, Nick. And if you're listening and you enjoy the show, uh, help others to discover it too by leaving a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts from. That's a a good way to make sure other people come across the program. Uh, John in Adelaide got in touch to say, I'm 38. I've been listening to your show for quite a while and loving the new podcast. Think it would be a fantastic idea for Tom to consider publishing all of his Ask Anything questions and answers into a book. It would perhaps flesh out the questions a little and make for a most engaging read. Thanks for all you do. Keep up the great work. Well, John, we've preempted you. We're going to be releasing an ebook of 12 key questions and answers from Tom from this series uh, as a thank you to anyone who can support the show. So more details on that soon. Uh, get yourself signed up to the newsletter and uh, you'll be the first to hear about that when it's made available. OK, but that's a special ebook uh, for newsletter subscribers. And uh, if you aren't already, do get yourself subscribed to that fortnightly newsletter over at askntwrite.com. Make sure you hear about these kinds of offers means you also get that link that allows you to send your own questions in for the show and you get automatically entered for new giveaways. And we've a new one right now. Three more copies of Tom Wright's The Bible for Everyone. Him and John Goldingay have worked together on a fresh translation of the Old and New Testament. It's a really massive prize. Uh, I've got 
all three of them stacked up on my desk at the moment. Um, all of them signed by Tom. We'll draw three winners for those from our subscriber list at the end of October. So again, to enter that, very simple. Just get signed up at askntright.com. Uh, that's the housekeeping out of the way. Let's get into today's edition of the show. Welcome back to another edition of the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast. Uh, we throw all kinds of things at you every couple of weeks, Tom, and today is no different. We're doing probably one of the biggest questions uh, that has existed since time immemorial, the problem of evil and suffering. I'm not expecting you to solve it necessarily <laughs> today, but um, it, it is posed in some interesting ways today. Um, I suppose whenever we come to do a podcast and questions and you're there as the person answering them, I suppose it's always with the caveat that um, there are some things don't really have very neat packaged mm -hmm. answers, do they? And we can only give people ways to try and think through mm -hmm. things. And, and everyone's different as to how they're ultimately going to resolve some of these big questions in their sure. own mind. Sure. Yeah, th that's undoubtedly true. And uh, the question of the problem of evil is is the archetypal one. Mm. And I've come to the view that that even though we don't have a good answer to the way the question is normally posed or has been in the last 200 years, 300 years anyway, we do have a very good answer for why we should expect that problem to come up in the way that it does. Mm. And that is, if we believe that God is the good and wise creator, then evil doesn't make sense. And, and, and that's the point. And the danger then is, if we as clever theologians or philosophers think we can make sense of it, then we're saying that actually God created a world within which, yeah, there's a place for evil and we'll let evil exist so that it can do this and that and the other, which is actually a very dark conclusion to reach. Mm. Um, and, of course, people can pose the question then in terms of Genesis 3, where did the snake come from? Why, why was there a snake in the garden in the first place? And um, there is something then about the freedom of God and the freedom which God gives to creation um, which remains a mystery. But I remember when I was teaching in Oxford, one of my fellow examiners one year for the for the finals paper set a question, would it be immoral to try to solve the problem of evil? <laughs> and I remember looking at that and thinking, what an odd thing. And then I thought, mm. oh, yes, I see. Because if you were able to say, yes, we understand why there is evil, so because it, this and this and this, tick, we've solved that one, then what you're saying is something pretty drastic about yeah. the way the world is. Mm. And I bet you can guess who the examiner in question no, was. No, I could tell you. Rowan Williams. Oh, <laughs> very good. So wow. perhaps we should expect yeah. that. Um, and I think, that, I think Rowan would say emphatically, actually, it would be immoral because you would then be accusing God of having made a world in which this was just part of the way stuff was. Mm. Well, there's one general question which I think sets sets the scene up really uh, quite well from Deb in Garland, North Carolina, who uh, emails in to say, hello, I'm an atheist who's interested in faith. Could you explain free will and how it relates to evil? I've had Christian friends explain that we've been given free will to love God, but also free will to do evil. But that makes it sound as if God allows cruelty to happen to innocent people so that he or it or she can be loved. Am I misunderstanding the concept of free will and the reason behind it? 
by the way i've just started your book paul for everyone <laughs> romans part one so oh, there wow. you go so well well that funny enough that that will cover some of this ground won't it of course a bit a bit though i'm delighted if somebody who's a self-confessed atheist would be starting with a commentary on romans <laughs> a great place to start in all sorts of ways um though there, there, there might be other places you could start mm. as well but wherever you start just find your way through i would say um of course part of the puzzle is that for the atheist uh, there isn't a problem Mm. Um, uh, for the atheist there's a problem of good Mm. because if the world is simply the random product of blind chance with atoms bouncing off each other or swerving as in epicureanism and and just producing new life forms there is no reason to suppose that we would like the resultant um, mess um, and the problem with natural selection, which is a way of solving that problem, to say, well, survival of the fittest, so we're getting better and stronger and better and stronger, is that uh, the survival of the fittest assumes lots and lots and lots of unfit life forms mm. which just fall by the wayside. And so if you go that um, – it's basically new, new Epicurean forms of, of philosophy – then you really have a problem. Why would we say that anything is good? And the answer that the Epicurean gives is, oh, good simply means I like this. Right. Um, but actually, that's not what most people mean by good. Mm. And if, if somebody tortures somebody else and then when challenged says, well, I like doing this, most of us would say, sorry, that's not good enough. Mm. And, um, and, and even if those – I mean, many people have tried to still tie it to a naturalistic account of good saying, well, we know that torturing people is bad for the f- flourishing yeah, of yeah, our yeah, species yeah, yeah, in yeah, an evolutionary yeah. sense – even that I found doesn't really get to sure. the root of why we disagree no, no, with, no, no, with quite. it. It's, the, it's quite, not a utilitarian the, argument. Quite. There is an innate moral sense, and even though that does vary from culture to culture in certain interesting ways, um, it can't quite be eradicated. And one of the things I've tried to argue in the Gifford Lectures is that there are certain things like justice, spirituality, relationships, beauty, freedom, truth, and power, which all of them have a certain draw across cultures and across time, but equally all of them are puzzling because we we know that justice matters, but we all are inclined to bend it when it's in our own favour mm. um, or seems to be in our own favour. And same with truth and, and, and power and so on. Um, and that's part of the problem of being human in this world. And that's part of setting the parameters for why um, questions like the problem of evil have to be dealt with within this larger whole. It's not enough to say, here are these things which we deem to be evil, both human evil and so-called natural evil, though whether an earthquake is evil or not, mm. it's just what the Earth's crust does. Um, and, yeah. But it produces suffering if oh, yeah, people of build houses of and skyscrapers of on it. Of course, absolutely. Uh, and and in, in a sense, though, the this specific question is about um, free will. And, yes. and that's there's been a typical defense of... Yes. of evil being yes, that well yes. god gives us freedom yeah yeah um obviously that's enables us to experience love relationship right, with god right. with each other all the goods but it comes at the comes cost to, to of, the of what we do with uh, on the, the negative side with Quite. freedom now i mean part of the problem there is that the puzzle of so-called free will philosophers have been bashing their heads against this forever and you end up if you're not careful so defending freedom that we do end up as random particles we're Mm. so free that actually we're just bouncing around Mm. and we think we're making choices but really we are so totally free that we're just 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 random nonsenses Mm. um and that's why in biblical thought you tend not to get an emphasis on 
free will as normally conceived philosophically, but on responsibility, that humans are given the dignity of making choices. And uh, as we said in a previous podcast about prayer, God seems to want to work in the world through human beings who are learning to make wise, good, healing choices. The other problem, of course, about free will is that however much you use a free will defense for um, saying, therefore, we humans mess stuff up and maybe that's an inevitable result of the way God made the world, that doesn't solve earthquakes and tsunamis and, and, and volcanoes and so on. And, and there the problem is, well, the humans had the responsibility to build houses on that point, but often they didn't know. And this mm. is why, of course, the Lisbon earthquake in 1755 was such a major philosophical disaster in mm. the Western world, as well as a, a physical and, and mm. human life disaster, that it made people think, oh, if there was a God, he wouldn't have let this happen. Mm. Um, but here, here's the, the really interesting point that I've puzzled over. This has seemed to be a problem in modern Western thought since maybe 1650, 1700, in a way which it never was in earlier Christian thought. Mm. You know, Augustine knows about all these things that happen. And he basically says, yeah, that, that's just the way the world is, but God is in charge and God will rescue us, etc. Now, he often seems to have thought in terms of being rescued from the world and going right. to heaven. But in the New Testament as well, Jesus and his first followers knew perfectly well that there were things like earthquakes and volcanoes and that people suffer and die in all sorts of ways. Life was, as the phrase goes, nasty, brutish and short for, for a great many mm. people. And they don't regard that as, oh dear, maybe there isn't a God after all. Rather, they see it in terms of um, the creator God has set in motion a purpose to rescue the world and to restore and heal the world so that those prophetic visions of new creation, like the wolf lying down with the lamb in Isaiah and so on, these are shimmering in the background as saying, there is a God, he is the good creator, there's a real mess at the moment, and he has got his own way of working to solve it, which won't necessarily be the way that we might like, but that's partly because we don't understand his ways. And drawing out this part of the question from Deb, which is, I think, where the crux of it is, can perhaps accept that we need free free will to, to choose to love and to, yeah. to be human yeah. and, and all those good things, but says if it means God allows cruelty to happen to innocent people as the cost of that, I, I guess Deb is struggling with whether the cost is worth the good, if yes, you like. And, yes. and, and is it a kind of trade-off between yeah, the two, yeah, yeah. ultimately? Well, I mean, that is the great question, which comes in famously in Dostoevsky and elsewhere. Um, is this the gamble, the risk that God has taken? And the Christian answer comes back again and again to say, the story that we tell is a story in which God himself has come in person to take the full force of all that evil onto himself. And one of the, I wrote a little book on the problem of evil ooh, 10 or 15 years ago called Evil and the Justice of God. Mm. And one of the insights which helped me as I was working through that, it's only a short book, was that the Gospels themselves tell the story of Jesus and his announcing of God's kingdom and his going to the cross. But it's not just about Jesus doing that. As Jesus comes and says, it's time for God to be king, follow me, and it's going to happen. Then evil of all sorts seems to be drawn to him as though to a magnet, that, mm. that there are plotting scribes and Pharisees, and there are shrieking demons in the synagogue, and some of his own followers get it wrong and plot against him, and, and, and people are out to get him. And the story 
you know, it's, it's like uh, the plot of a movie where you realize that from every corner there are insidious forces and whispering voices in his own head. And then the whole thing rushes together, puts him on the cross. And then something has happened on the cross through which the power of that evil is broken. So mm. this isn't a philosophical answer. It's a way of saying that the philosophical question needs to be confronted by the actual Israel narrative reaching its climax in Jesus. And then the church's agenda in the power of the Spirit must be to say, okay, if we are the people who celebrate Jesus' victory over the powers of evil, we must be the people in and through whose communities injustice, oppression, wickedness, lies are actually being dealt with. And that's why it was interesting that it is this Romans part one that, yes, that Deb yes. is studying, because when I think of a passage that deals with that, it is Romans 8, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and it is the fact that Paul acknowledges we live in this broken world, this in bondage to decay, yep, yep, yep. and yet simply accepts that and says, but yes. we are the ones who are yes, being yes. born for this new world, and, and, and right. that God works all things together for the good of those who love yes, him. Yes, yes, and that in, in Romans 8, we who believe in Jesus are being scooped up into that purpose so that the suffering of Jesus through which the basic victory was won is then reinstantiated in the groaning of Jesus' followers as we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We're surrounded by so much suffering and rubbish and horrible things. And we stand there saying, Lord, I'd love to pray about this. I'm not even sure what. And Paul says at that moment, the Spirit is groaning within us and the Father is listening. And in that dialogue of father and spirit we are being conformed to the image of the son and and so this puts the mystery of the trinity if you like at the heart of the biblical answer to the problem of evil not that it's an answer that will satisfy the philosophers but that it's a way of translating the question into a narrative and historical mode and we are part of that history What's the next book that Deb should read once they've completed Paul uh, <laughs> for Everyone? Well, per perhaps Evil and the Justice of God. But, okay. Um, yeah. But. Well, whatever helps. I hope this answer has helped, Deb. And, and we wish you the very best in your, your continuing journey as you explore that. Um, moving on to a slightly different angle on this. Um, we talked about, you know, some of those classic philosophical issues around free will and, and love and evil and so on. But Paul in Kansas asks, um, many of the theodicies I've heard on why God would allow so much suffering in the world are predicated on the necessity and goodness of free will. But then my question is about the new heaven and new earth. Is this a literal place where believers are gathered with glorified bodies who love God? Does not this new state of existence also require the presence of free will? And would not that in turn necessitate the possibility of another fall or yeah, sin yeah, itself yeah, and yeah. yeah that's an interesting question yeah, are, are is, we somehow yeah, experiencing yeah, free will yeah, in a different way in the yeah, new creation yeah, that yeah. doesn't mean the possibility yeah. of, of sin? Uh, it's a great, it is a great question and i think the new testament is very much aware that that question could be raised and i think though it's a very dark passage that that's why towards the end of the book of revelation uh, that the satan the old dragon is released for a short time and then is finally given his total comeuppance. And I think that's a richly symbolical way of saying we can imagine that there might be a snake in the new garden, but actually the snake has done his worst mm. and we are quite sure that, that, that he's right. been dispatched. So that's, that's one possible way in. Another way is to say this is the problem with our analysis of free will mm. and the use of that free will defense could push in that direction it's interesting in america at the moment much more than in britain i think there are quite a lot of younger christians who are being quite 
philosophically savvy in a way that their British counterparts probably aren't, um, but who get sometimes a kind of a rationalistic apologetic, which mm. would include that sort of free will defense. And I want to say, just, just be careful what you do with that, because it does lead you into strange places. And part of the dynamic of freedom in the New Testament is that uh, as Paul would say, we are set free from slavery to sin in order to be enslaved to righteousness. Mm. And that's Paul is saying that as a deliberate paradox in sure. Romans 6. But then he fills that out in Romans 8 with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And the point of the Spirit is that when the Spirit is at work, then we are truly free. And mm. there is a freedom about that. And um, this, this is... Uh, you know, it's like if I'm driving a car, I am free. I'm free to steer into the path of an oncoming truck. I'm free to steer off the road into a ditch. But actually, if I use those freedoms, I will not be free to drive this car anymore. I may yeah, not even be yes. free to be alive anymore. Mm. And so uh, freedom is a little more complicated yes. than simply I can do what I like. And, um, and, and you've used, that, I know, the, the analogy of music before that it's only once we have learned and understood the boundaries of how yeah, music yeah, works yeah, yeah, that yeah. we can then do the improvisation I, I, exactly because we need the exactly. boundaries to be free exactly and that's, that's there's certainly improvisation or or the 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 brilliant violinist or pianist who learns to play the concerto by the long hours of discipline i listened to something on the radio the other day a professional pianist talking about the boringness of practice take the same phrase over and yeah, over you play yeah. it backwards and sideways and, and he said only when you've done that for a few hours then when you come to play that sonata concerto whatever it is there is a freedom you mm. can now pour yourself into mm. it knowing that your fingers will do what they should. Yes. And this is the paradox of freedom and virtue, mm. that virtue is a second nature. It's a second freedom, if you like, that you submit yourself to the discipline of learning the stuff in order that you can then freely practice it. And, and um, this, this, I suppose, is, is the answer we might give to the, to, to the skeptic who says, why would I want to be a Christian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all about rules and regulations. I want to be free. Well, yeah, the fact yeah. is, you're you're in bondage to something else we yeah, were always yeah, master yeah. to something or sure. other um and mm. we might yeah. as well make it god and his well, good might as well us. yes quite <laughs> though the, that'd be quite demanding but but yes i mean that's part of the appeal of the gospel if the sun sets you free you will be genuinely free right uh, and that's very controversial when jesus says that to his judean interlocutors they say we've never been slave to anyone which is an odd thing for first century jews to say but they do um and jesus says no there is a deeper sense of freedom and therefore it's really about what does it mean to be human? And being human doesn't mean being free like somebody, you know, supposing I'm randomly dropped from a helicopter into a strange city where I know nobody, but I've got some money in my pocket. I'm free to do what I like all day, but I really have no idea what I ought to be doing. Well, that's a sort of freedom. But actually, it's not nearly as exciting and interesting mm -hmm. as the freedom which I have when there's a well-planned trip mm -hmm. to somewhere that I know and love, where I can go to a football match or a music event or whatever it might be. And I'm totally free because I have made the effort to be within this context which enhances who I am instead of just wandering around thinking, what am I doing here? You know. Well, I, there two two kind of different strands that we've taken there in this whole discussion on evil and freedom. Um but I hope that's helped both Paul and Deb. Uh, my, my, where I've often simply landed is that there are no easy answers to the problem <laughs> of evil. Sure. But for me, I'd rather live with 
evil and suffering as a mystery in Christianity than it simply being meaningless, as you said, yeah, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In, in, in an athe- yeah, purely yeah. atheistic worldview. And, uh, and, and that's, I mean, the, the classic thing, which I think it was Martin Luther said, there are certain things we can understand by the light of nature, but there are mysteries there which we can only understand in the light of grace. And even within the grace of the Christian life, there are things which we can't understand, which we will understand in the light of glory. Now, I would want to nuance his vision of the future somewhat differently, but it's as though at every stage we should expect there to be mysteries and puzzles. And if there weren't, then I'm not sure that God would be God. He would just be a function of our little limited understandings. Well, the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast comes to you courtesy of Premier in partnership with SBCK and N.T. Write Online. Now, Tom has published many books, and if you're just starting out, you may not know where to begin. Well, SBCK, Tom's UK publisher, currently have a buy one, get one half price deal on some of his most popular titles, like Simply Christian and Simply Jesus. Those are kind of books that help you make sense of the big picture of Christianity. There are also others you may not have heard of, such as For All the Saints, Remembering the Christian Departed, and God in Public, How the Bible Speaks Truth to Power Today. So get the buy one, get one half price deal over at sbckpublishing.co.uk forward slash askntwrite. Let's turn to uh, another set of issues now. We've talked uh, about the big philosophical question, theological question of, of evil, suffering, um, free will. This is a much more practical how we, how we are to live uh, as Christians in the world that we find ourselves mm-hmm. in. Um, and these questions have both been submitted by Doug Stewart from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If people enjoy this podcast, they may also enjoy Doug's one. Um, and the first question uh, from Doug is, Tom, many Christians like to use the Bible as a moral guidebook and extrapolate from that what their fellow citizens must live by. And the debate tends to circle around what good biblical politics looks like. Personal moralism on the one side and corporate moralism on the other. But can Christians really take the scripture and use them to tell the rest of their country what laws they must live under? Does this get too close to a theocracy? Great question. And it looks very different from America than it would in Britain or indeed in France or indeed Mm. Germany or indeed Africa, uh, etc., etc. In other words, um, I understand where in America things have swung this way and that because – by constitution, 240 years ago, whenever it was, they said church and state separate. And that's been very difficult to live with. Mm. And many Americans today are now having to come to terms with the fact that actually, if you say total separation, then you can have an atheistic state which goes charging off and does its Mm. own thing, leaving the Christians who thought they were in quite a friendly environment Mm. feeling decidedly discriminated against. But how do you put that back together without Uh, producing the sort of nonsenses that many people think were going on under rather fierce Calvinistic legislation Mm -hmm. earlier on, etc., etc. In Britain, we don't have that discussion. We have a very different one. And we have muddled along with an uneasy alliance in very British fashion of church and state, which um, Americans look at and say, how does that work? And the answer is, well, it does and it doesn't. And, <laughs> and you have to sort of live with it. And, and yes. it's, it's all very peculiar. Um, but we don't have that extreme separation. So then the question comes, actually, 
The kingdom of God is a theocracy, but the problem with theocracy is which theos have you got? Mm. Um, And when people hear theocracy, they often think of a big, bullying, angry God who has given a hotline to him to certain people, um, call them clergy or whatever, and they will simply tell you God's um, decisions and you've got to get in line or you have your head, head chopped off or whatever. And of course, we know that there are some religions and some regimes that have behaved and indeed are behaving like that as we speak the difference with christianity is that the theos in question who is the theos of the theocracy is the god who is the father of jesus christ who says i love you so much i'm giving my son to die for you i love you so much i'm putting my spirit within you so that you can be genuine humans now i like the idea of that theos running the world and i notice that that's what the sermon on the mount is about when jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit the meek the mourners the hungry for justice people um uh, peacemakers etc that's how theocracy works by ordinary prayerful people being peacemakers hungry for justice folk etc etc and of course that's bitty and messy because the god who god is doesn't send in the tanks he sends in that lot the little people who are grieving over the ruin of the world and determined by the spirit to do Mm. something about it Um, now I, i like that theocracy but you can't translate that theocracy straight onto the statute book because, as the early Christians knew, there are many religions and, and life forms out there. And so the church from the beginning was a new sort of politics, mm. which both was and wasn't competing with the existing ones. I mean, by saying Jesus is Lord, it's quite clear it means Caesar isn't. But when then Caesar decides three or four centuries down the track that so many of his subjects have become Christians that he wants to get on board with that, uh, that's a very dangerous and risky moment. But the answer isn't, oh, no, please go on persecuting us because we'd be so much more authentic to be a beleaguered minority. The answer has to be, okay, so what's this going to look like? And presumably it means creating a wise and safe environment in which the church can do what it does best, which is looking after the poor, healing the sick, bringing education to everybody, etc. Those three things, by the way, looking after the poor, medicine and education, have been part of the church's DNA from the beginning. Mm. We think that's odd in the Western world because the state does those now um, and tells the church to get its hands off. But actually, that's what we've always been good at. And and it's difficult, isn't it? Because we we obviously live in in the afterglow of a, a kind of Christendom uh, in the yeah, West to yeah, some extent, yeah, sort of. Uh, where to mm. some extent the state did sort of because it has been shaped by a Judeo Christian mm-hmm, worldview mm-hmm. take on those responsibilities, sure. and then the church sort of forgot that it was also supposed to be to be doing that. Sure, and and sure. some some have argued, and I don't know if this is Doug's position, but that okay, let's let the state do what it does, and let's the church do what it's supposed to do and we shouldn't be too concerned about whether the state does or doesn't reflect christian values i I think the question then is this is going to vary enormously from place to place i remember at the lambeth conference um 10 or 11 years ago um being with some uh, christians from myanmar and they were talking about whether there are one or two members of the ruling elite the hunter or whatever they were who were closet christians and i remember thinking oh my goodness if you live in a country like that all the questions of church and state and Christian freedom and law and so on look totally different different, from either if you live in a muddled country like mine or if you live in a country like America, which had this big, rather rigid, typically 18th century split, you know, very Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Um, And 
I, I want to say we need to become more savvy at navigating our own histories in, in, in those moments and saying this is where we are now. What does it mean to be followers of Jesus in this place now? Um, and I don't think for most of us in the Western world this means we'll retreat, do our own thing as church, and let the state do its thing, because the church has to have a prophetic voice vis-a-vis mm. the state. In John 16, which happened to be my morning reading this morning by nice coincidence, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, um, and explains that a bit. And I remember, I may have said this to you before, for years thinking, what a great thing, the Spirit holding the world to account. And then it suddenly dawns on me, uh, Jesus doesn't give the Spirit in general terms. Jesus gives the Spirit to his followers so that his followers can Mm. hold up the mirror to power and say sin and righteousness and judgment. And if you want to know what that looks like in John's Gospel, read John 18 and 19 where Jesus confronts Pontius Pilate and argues with him about kingdom and truth and power. And Pilate eventually kills him, but in the great irony of the gospel, that is the victory of the kingdom, Jesus as king of the Jews, because thereafter new creation is launched, and Pontius Pilate is is yesterday's man, as it were. Um, We only know him because of the creeds of the Christian church, really. (laughs) Well, pretty much, pretty much. Um, So that is the church's vocation, to figure out what Mm. it would mean to do vis-a-vis our own governments, be they benign or not benign, what Jesus was doing with Pontius Pilate. One more question here from Doug. Uh, if declaring Jesus is Lord means implicitly that Caesar is not, how might Christ followers live today in a world of American and European empires that are somewhat more democratic than the Roman Empire? They may be, but they may not be. The Romans voted all right, but there was a system, and you had to be rather rich and powerful to get in on the system. That does sound rather like what some of us see when we look across the pond at our American friends, that, you know, in order to be a senator, you have to be a millionaire. In order to be a president, you have to raise multi-millions. Mm. Um, it's, you know, yes, it's voted for, but there's all sorts of constraints. And one of the things I pray for regularly is that God will raise up a new generation on both sides of the Atlantic of wise leaders who will be credible and votable for in a way which actually of late has not been true in my country and perhaps some Americans might say has not been entirely true for them either. Thank you for tackling a wide range of questions (laughs) on the podcast today tom it's been a pleasure as always uh, and i hope you've enjoyed listening as well Uh, don't forget you can ask more questions uh, of tom we will be uh, recording some more sessions of the podcast soon so feel free to get them in and uh, avail yourself of all the other bonus content that's available from the website when you subscribe to our newsletter that's all available from askntwrite.com but for now thank you tom thank you thank you very much Thanks for being with us on today's show. Next time, we'll be answering more of your pastoral questions that have been sent in. Do make sure you're subscribed for the regular newsletter, bonus content and that prize draw, one of three signed copies of Tom's fresh translation of scripture, The Bible for Everyone. Sign up at askntwrite.com to make sure you're in the draw by the end of October. And if you want to join me at another kind of think fest out in the USA, do look out for Unbelievable Live in LA. Two great days of conversation about Christian faith in Costa Mesa, California, on the 11th and 12th of October, featuring, among others, Professor John Lennox. That's at unbelievable.live. Thanks for being with us and see you next time.
You've been listening to the Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider. For more podcasts from Premier, visit premier.org.uk slash podcasts.